This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your word is given to us in order to expose to us the realities of your creation, to unveil information that is not available to us through our senses, through our reason, but that must be, we must be informed about from the Creator, the one who originated all things and who designed all things. It is only as we live and think and operate on the basis of your revelation that we are living on the basis of reality. And to the degree that we reject, to the degree that we deny, to the degree that we suppress the truth of your word, we live in a fantasy world, a made-up world, a world that is divorced from reality, and in a world that eventually brings misery and will bring self-destruction. Father, as we study your word today, we're engaged in a study on marriage on the roles and responsibilities of husbands as the spiritual leaders in the home and of wives as those who have been designed to uh, complement, assist, aid the husbands in that role and what is revealed in Scripture related to marriage and especially a Christian marriage and understanding how also how many of us have been infected by the distorted and deceptive teaching of the world around us. So, Father, we pray that as we continue this study that you may help us to clearly see areas where we need to uh, adjust our thinking, submit to your authority and your word, where we can pursue a, a life individually and a marriage that glorifies you and fulfills the original design and purpose that you have. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. William Moulton Marston. I bet that's a name that's not familiar to most of you, but for many of you, you are familiar with some of his inventions, some of the things he originated, and almost all of us have been negatively impacted by his influence on our culture. Marston was uh, lived from 1893 until his death in 1947. He had his Ph.D. in psychology from Harvard, but he is uh, often known for not his invention of the lie detector machine, 
or his influence in uh, humanist psychology, but for his uh, comic book creation to influence and change the thinking of American males about women. Uh, A comic book hero that was created in order to subvert the biblical tradition and understanding of the roles and responsibilities of men and women in the culture and as an advocate of his radical feminist ideas. His comic book creation was Wonder Woman. Now, Marston, as I said, was a radical feminist. He predates the rise of uh, radical feminism in the 60s, which is to show that the ideas that came out of the uh, Betty Friedan at all environment of feminism in the in the 60s had its roots in soil that not only goes back to the early 20th century but back into the 19th century. Uh, as Solomon observed in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, and there are elements of all of these ideas that can be traced back into the. Uh, dark mists of the antediluvian period before uh, the Noahic flood. But just because these ideas go back millennia doesn't mean that we can dismiss them by saying, well, it's just the same old lie, because Satan is the master of taking the same old lie, the same old deception, and dressing it up in new clothes that are continuously appealing to the fallen nature of the human race and to that desire that is at the core of every one of our corrupt, sinful selves, and that is to be the ultimate authority in our lives and to reject uh, the authority of God. Uh, Moulton <clears throat> was an advocate of, of uh, feminism, and he believed that the female nature was uh, was submissive and was basically peaceful and was the antidote to the violent, aggressive nature of the male. And it was his belief that by putting forth a, a female superhero that this would, uh, because of all of her powers and her abilities, that this would create a role model that young boys could aspire to because of her ability to defeat evil and injustice. And this indeed has proven the case. It's not the only thing of that nature in our culture, but it's one of many things. In 1943, in an issue of a periodical entitled The American Scholar, Marston wrote, uh, not even girls want to be girls so long as our feminine archetype lacks force, strength, and power. Not wanting to be girls, they don't want to be tender, submissive, peace-loving as good women are. Women's strong qualities have become despised because of their weakness. The obvious remedy is to create a feminine character with all the strength of Superman plus all the allure of a good and uh, beautiful woman. So he sought to uh, create this this superhero that would be attractive to both uh, women changing the perception of the role of of women and females within society as well as uh, men. He said the only hope for peace is to teach people who are full of pep and unbound force, that is men, to enjoy being bound, 
See, submissive was a big thing for him. He was uh, very big into a lot of sexual perversion. He was married to Elizabeth Halton, and they lived together with Olive Byrne. And, in fact, Wonder Woman was inspired by a combination of the qualities of the two women he lived with. He was a functional bigamist, although not a legal uh, bigamist. So he uh, <clears throat> he wanted to change the dynamic, the model of of, uh, of what it meant to be a man. He said, only when the control of self by others is more pleasant than the unbound assertion of self in human relationships can we hope for a stable, peaceful human society. Remember, he's writing this in the context of of the World War of World War Two. He said, giving to others, being controlled by them, submitting to other people cannot possibly be enjoyable without a strong erotic element. And so there were undertones. And if you paid attention to the news in, 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 the, in, in recent months, there, there, a lot of these superheroes that uh, some of us grew up reading, Batman, uh, Superman, many others are coming out of the closet, uh, exposing their uh, homosexual uh, background, who knew? But that was there with Wonder Woman. Uh, uh, there was an aspect to her that he uh, brought in to a very subtle aspect that would be uh, conducive to promote uh, uh, lesbianism and this approach to the roles of men and women. Our culture has been affected by people like him, uh, again and again and again, those who are completely independent of God, those who have rebelled against the truth of God's word, those who seek to reshape uh, culture and society on the basis of Darwinian evolution, on the basis of Marxism, on the basis of Freudian psychology, have, have put forth many different models, whether it is in the arts or whether it is in law in order to change our culture, such that today the average male in America under the age of 40 does not think of maleness and manhood or femininity and what it means to be a woman in the same way that their grandparents' generation did. And it makes us wonder where the real men and true women will be to lead our culture in in the future. But there was one other little aspect that I just can't avoid mentioning about uh, about Marston, and that is that he also developed, and he's the author of a model of psychology that is based on uh, temperament and personality analysis. And it is sometimes referred to as the DISC model, and that stands for different uh, character character qualities. And the reason I bring this up is because I remember, uh, as a young man back in the back in the seventies, um, uh, as psychology has become became more influential within Christianity, becoming aware of this model. It was very popular to take different kinds of temperament analysis tests: the Taylor Johnson temperament analysis test the MMPI personality assessment test, which after I graduated from Dallas became a, uh, a standard for uh, acceptance of any student into Dallas Seminary. The, the, if you didn't pass the MMPI and the norm for the MMPI, which stood for the Minnesota something personality something or other, uh, the, the norm was established through uh, using uh, uh, prisoners. 
So you 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 had a you, you you had an off base an abnormal control group to begin with, but the DISC was taken uh, as a pattern for four different personality types, and you you know there were different gradations between them. But I remember when I was going to uh, Spring Branch Community Church before I went to seminary, that one of the elders there. Uh, was an enormous advocate of this and taught it and promoted it in his business. Later on, when I was in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary, he would frequently be invited to address different classes in the pastoral ministries department on counseling related to this model. Well, this whole model of psychology was also originated by uh, William Marston. And the reason I bring that out is just to show how here you have this this rank pagan, anti-Christian, anti-truth unbeliever whose influence is so pervasive that it, 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 his ideas gradually and slowly begin to infiltrate into Christianity. And, and the reality of that is no different from each of our individual lives. We are born in a culture that is the, called by Scripture uh, the world system. The, I use the Greek word cosmic from cosmos, which is translated world, to describe this system. It is a reflection of the kind of thinking uh, that, is, that is characteristic of Satan in his fall. When Satan fell, what was the issue in Satan's fall? If you think back to what we've studied in the past in Isaiah chapter 14, we're told that, that there uh, Satan is depicted as the power behind the king of, of, of Babylon, articulated his ambition in five I wills. And the culmination of that is that he said, I will be worshipped like the Most High. His core sin was a sin of rebellion against the authority of God. This is a foundational idea in Scripture, this idea of authority, the authority of God, the doctrine of divine authority, and throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, There is an emphasis on authority. There is an emphasis on uh, individual believers being responsive to legitimate authorities that God has set over us. Romans 13 talks about the fact that there is no authority in relation to human government that is not ordained of God. When we get into passages like the one we're studying in Colossians 3 and its parallel more developed passage in Ephesians 5, the focus there is on submission to authority, recognizing that God has built into creation from before the fall the concept of authority and failure to submit to the properly ordained authorities is to follow the path of Satan. I bring this up because as we've been in this a sub-series of Colossians the last two or three weeks, I've been emphasizing uh, this nature of authority within the structure of marriage and the structure of the home, an idea that runs completely counter to the dominant thinking that characterizes our culture today, the values related to uh, marriage, related to what it means to be a male, what manhood is, what it means to be a woman, what, what it means to have uh, the characteristics of biblical womanhood runs counter to the values of our culture and in such a way that 
that many, many uh, Christian women who firmly believe that they are following biblical patterns, that if you were to look at uh, <clears throat> some of these models as they are held today and compare them to 150 years ago, uh, many conservative Christian women who are held up as role models, as teachers, as advocates of a biblical view would be viewed as liberal, radical feminists in their ideas compared to their counterparts from 150 years ago. That's how far we have changed. Now, granted, I, I always want to mention this. There were there are always aspects of culture that somehow get added to biblical views that distort them and has led to abuse, and that's recognized, and I'll, I will deal with that. But ultimately, we have to go back to the, the created order and purpose of God. So in this lesson this morning, I'm looking at this principle of authority as it exists in the Godhead, the, the, the consequences and corruption of sin upon the whole, uh, whole issue of authority, and especially within the human race. I pointed out, just so we remember where we're coming from, that the foundational command in Colossians 3.16 is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. There's a series of participles and commands that follow that that indicate the result of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. And immediately following that as part of what it means to have the word of Christ uh, richly inhabit our lives, there are a series of relationships that are briefly uh, briefly described in commands that are briefly articulated in relation to the marriage and the home. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for that is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The following verses from that also talk about the relationship of slaves to masters and masters to slaves. At the core of all of this, before we get into the specifics of talking about what makes a godly marriage and a godly family, is a recognition of authority and role distinction and how that is developed from the Bible. Paul doesn't just generate this out of his own opinion. This is not the result as modern feminists and evangelical feminists will say that that this is a result of just his... Uh, rabbinic background, and that essentially he was a cultural chauvinist, and that is his view. We believe the Bible is the inspired, the breathed-out Word of God, and this is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is not based on culture. It is not based on rabbinical ideas, but it is based upon the revelation of God. And so we have gone back to look at what Scripture teaches about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what is essential and distinct and significant about being a human being. And we've seen in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, when God created man, the, the human race, man as mankind, was created in his image. And <clears throat> he created them in verse 27, male and female, that men and women are equally human that they participate in all that it means to be human, that one is not, does not have more humanness than others. 
Now, there are perversions and distortions of this that we see in other religious systems. For example, in Islam, ultimately the female does not have all of the inherent intrinsic value that the male has. And so there, even though they talk about women being submissive to men, there sounds like there's a similarity. It is a submission in being as well as in role. And what I'm saying that the Bible teaches is that there is not a distinction in being or in essence or in humanness, that men and women are intrinsically equal in terms of their human nature, but that there are role distinctions. Those role distinctions, as I pointed out last time, are discovered also in the very character of God and that the fact that the Bible teaches a multiple multiplicity, a plurality in the Godhead, indicates that there's both a, a, an equality aspect in the Trinity, that Father is equal to the Son, the Father and Son are equal to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is equal to the Son and the Father in all aspects of the essence. One is not more omniscient or more omnipotent than another. They are equal in terms of their essence. But yet there are role distinctions that are emphasized in, in the Scripture. Uh, and <clears throat> Jesus came to be a servant. That is a word that is that is similar to the word that is used to in the Hebrew in the Old Testament to describe the role of the woman when God created the woman as a helper to the man. He created the male first and then the woman out of his side for some reasons I'll go into in a minute. But her role is to be an assistant. This means that she is to complement the man, not with, spelled with an I, meaning telling him he's a great guy and he looks good and he's sexy and everything else, but complement with an E, meaning that together the two parts form a whole, that the mission as God understood it and created it and de 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 defined it for the human race is one that is to be accomplished through the complementary uh, function of male and female. Now, that reflects the fact that in the Godhead there is a complete unity, a oneness, as is seen in passages like Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as I pointed out, the word one there does not refer to a, a mathematic, mathematical singularity, but a unity of, of multiples. It's the same word, one, that is used when God says that a man shall leave his father and mother and the two, male and female, shall be one flesh. So you have two individuals that come together in a unity of marriage. Uh, Colossians 1.18 talks about the fact that even within this, this unity of the Godhead, there are distinctions, and there's uh, a distinct role specifically related to Jesus Christ in terms of his role as the head of the body of the church. And that word head doesn't indicate origin. As I've said, it indicates authority. 1 Corinthians 11.3, which I was mentioning at the end last time, talks about this head relationship, and that that means authority and not source. And there Paul writes, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. That mean, that's talking about men as males, not mankind, but men. 
The authority over you is Jesus Christ. You are in the body of Christ, and the authority over you, the one whom you serve, the one to whom you are accountable, and to whom we will all be accountable for our uh, role, our responsibilities as husbands and as fathers, is the Lord Jesus Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, this will be uh, an issue. So that we have, there's always accountability in authority. I want you to know that the head or the authority of every man is Christ, every male is Christ. The head or the authority of woman is man. The distinction there that the authority that God has established in the marriage is the male. Sometimes women, you know this, you don't agree with him. Sometimes he doesn't seem to be very worthy of his position. And that's always a test for uh, a lot of ladies. It's not any different from the test for many of us in terms of political leadership. We have to learn to respect the office, even though the inhabitant of the office is not worthy of respect. This is a basic lesson in authority from the time that we are very young. We may have a teacher, a coach, a professor, Uh, someone in the military who's in command who is not very good, who's not qualified perhaps, who who is less than effective in that role, yet because they're in that office of authority then as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing the purpose and emphasis of authority in the Scripture, we are to be respectful of the office and we are to be obedient to those who are put in authority over us. So the authority of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Even Jesus Christ is under authority. Now, this is so important to understand because the cry from the feminist left is that authority and submission only entered into the human race and human history as a corrective to the fall. But what this passage shows, along with numerous other passages, is that authority existed from eternity past within the Godhead itself. In the perfect environment of the Trinity, there was authority and there was submission. So authority and submission are intrinsically good. They are intrinsically righteous. They are eternally present in the Godhead, and they are part of uh, human history and God's creation. So we see a line of authority, God over Christ, Christ over the man, man over, over the woman. I looked at some other passages I mentioned, such as John 5.19, where Jesus said that he can do nothing of himself unless uh, the Father allows him complete authority orientation. Yet, John 10.30, he recognized he and the Father were one, part of the Trinity that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are completely equal in terms of their deity, yet distinct in terms of their role and their personhood. That is so important to understand because the assault that we experience in our culture uh, in terms of the roles of men and women is ultimately grounded upon certain perceptions of reality that deny the doctrine of the Trinity, that attack and deny the role of submission 
of the Son and the whole doctrine of the Sonship of Christ comes under assault. So that to the degree that anyone buys into the assumptions of feminism, they are buying into blasphemous heresy because what undergirds these doctrines is a view of reality that is completely antagonistic to the being of God as revealed uh, as revealed in Scripture. Now, as I've gone through this in the last couple of weeks, I've talked about the emphasis of, the, the, of authority, the emphasis on the equality of the persons within the Trinity, but the role distinctions, and that when God created uh, man and woman, he created them from the very beginning before there was sin in perfect unity, perfect harmony, but with these role distinctions. And everybody sits back and goes, yeah, that's well and good because they're li- living in a perfect environment. She doesn't have to put up with this nasty, lazy, no good, drunk, violent, whatever uh, husband like I have. Uh, it's perfect environment. He's not a sinner. And the men are saying, yeah, it's easy to be a good leader in the home when you have a woman who doesn't have a sin nature because she's not only beautiful on the outside as God originally created her, but she's beautiful on the inside. And if my wife were just like that, we could accomplish all kinds of things together. And we recognize by saying things like that that something happened after that original creation, and we have to come to understand the impact of that, of the entrance of sin into uh, into the world and how that impacts our understanding and application of these principles of authority and submission. And the best place to see that is when God identifies and lists out the consequences to sin to each participant uh, there in the garden. After God came and uh, came walking in the garden, note that he, he addresses the man. It was not the man who sinned first, but he is the leader. That's evidence that he's the leader. God comes looking for Adam. He doesn't say, Eve, did, what did you do? Of course, she wasn't named Eve yet. That doesn't come until the end of chapter 3, but he's looking for, her, for Adam, not the woman. And then when God begins to address each one involved in the fall, first he addressed the serpent, then to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. And the idea in the Hebrew there is not that she would not have had discomfort in giving birth prior to this, but that now there is going to be a lot of pain and sorrow and difficulty associated with the process of of procreation and birth. And this addresses one of the prime purposes that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, that they were to be fruitful and multiply. Now with sin, the accomplishment of that God-given objective is going to be made much more difficult. It has become corrupted by sin. doesn't mean they're not to be fruitful and multiply anymore, but that it is now negatively impacted by living in a fallen environment. So the first thing God says is, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And there are those who have understood this to be something positive. But this is a curse statement, not a blessing statement. There's nothing in here that God is saying that is positive. These are all negative consequences 
as for the act of sin. So the desire here is not a desire to love, not a sexual desire, not a desire related to attraction. It is something quite different. The word that is used in the Hebrew is a word that is only used in a few places in the, in the <coughs> Hebrew scriptures, and it's used twice by Moses in chapters that are next to each other, indicating that you don't leap a thousand 1,500 years forward to grab another meaning to read back into Genesis. We need to uh, utilize this in terms of its word meaning in <clears throat> at the time of Moses. It's the word teshuka, and it really means a desire to dominate, a desire to control, a desire to be the authority in <clears throat> a, a relationship. We know this because in just the next chapter, if you have your Bible open to Genesis 3, then if you just look across the page to Genesis 4-7, you could circle both words and draw a line between them so you don't forget this. There we have the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain is quite angry that God has approved Abel's sacrifice. And so he is giving in to anger and resentment and bitterness and feelings of of jealousy and rage and vindictiveness toward his brother. And God comes to Cain and says that uh, uh, you need to really watch out for the way sin is working inside of you because sin seeks to dominate you. And he says it this way. He says, if you do well, you'll be accepted. In other words, if you're obedient to me and provide the right kind of sacrifice, it will be accepted. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Sin lies at the door. The imagery here he uses is the word of a, of a ravenous animal crouching ready to pounce upon its victim to devour it for dinner. And so he uses that imagery. Sin is just seeking. It's inside of you. It's coiled up like a, like a snake ready to strike, ready to pounce upon you. It's desire. There's that same word. It's only used three or four times in the whole scripture. It's not a positive thing. The desire of the sin nature is to control, to dominate you. That's the same kind of desire that is generally true of women as a result of the curse. Now, men don't get off scot-free on this, trust me. But And this doesn't mean that every woman is equally as anti-authority and equally as prone to uh, domination of the male uh, as as they could be. This, these are general statements related to trends that will be manifested in the male population and the female population throughout human history as a result of, of the curse. So the woman is warned that that her desire will be for the man, and God then says, and he shall rule over you. This is the origin of the war of the sexes. The woman wants to dominate in the relationship, and the man, because she's being rebellious, seeks to exert his control. And so there is this battle for authority. Who's going to control the home? Who's going to be the one ultimately in charge? And now, because of sin, what you have is two people who have sin natures, whose basic orientation is self-absorption, and it's all about him, it's all about her, and now they're together in a marriage, and they have to uh, learn to live with each other. 
and they each have these sin natures that seek to manipulate, control, and dominate the other. We are all under the curse of sin. So how can we ever, ever hope to have a happy, a fulfilling uh, marriage that fulfills the role of God? Only if that sin problem is dealt with, not only absolutely in terms of salvation, but on a progressive basis day to day. Otherwise, basically happiness comes if you're a woman, if you find some some uh, meek, mild man who's into submission and who'll do whatever you want, and uh, or the opposite is true, where the women, the men want some woman who's just going to do whatever he wants, whenever he, whenever he wants it. It's the battle of the wills. Now, the the curse on the man is somewhat related. Remember, the curse, this judgment, is related to God's original intent. The God's original intent for the woman was, number one, the combined command to both male and female, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, to do that, she's got to deal with all this pain related to uh, conception, the ongoing uh, monthly cycles, the uh, pain in labor. All of these things are related to that, and that directly is related to to her God-given mission in relation to that objective. And then... Because she was created to be a helper, an assistant to to help Adam achieve God's mission for him, and instead she puts the largest roadblock in history in front of him and he stumbles over it, now there's going to be a battle over who's in charge because that's where she failed, was in that element of stepping out from under his, his authority. Well... Adam's going to be hit. The males are going to be hit with judgment consequences that are equally related to God's intended uh, mission to men. Uh, God said to Adam in verse 17, because you've heeded the voice of your wife. See, you. It, it, this doesn't mean, men, that you should never listen to your wives. See, they're also created to help you. You have to have the discernment to recognize when your wife is right and she's helping you, and when she's not right. Now, that's the path of wisdom that takes time, okay? And she's probably right in some ways a lot more than you want to give her credit for because she sees you maybe a little more objectively than you see yourself. So this is not a pattern saying, men, you should never listen to your wives. You should only avoid listening to your wife when she's telling you to do something in violation of the word of God. So God says, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat of it, God says, cursed is the ground for your sake. What was his mission? He was to take care of the garden. But now that's going to be an obstacle for him because the garden is not going to be cooperative it's going to be an obstacle. It's going to produce thorns and thistles and weeds, and you're going to have to water it every day. All of these different things come in, and he says, Curse is the ground for your sake, and in toil you shall eat of it. That doesn't mean he didn't work prior to the fall, but it wasn't labor. Now, some of you, because you're not thinking or following me, can only think of the word work like Maynard G. Krebs. 
For those of you who don't remember Dobie Gillis, some of you do, but that he always said, he never wanted to work. It was a character from an old TV show. <laughs> that is the trend of most males because of this curse. Work before the fall was not laborious. It was not toil. It was the fulfillment of responsibility. It's the foundation for the biblical teachings on labor and that there are responsibilities, and Adam had things to do, but it wasn't different. There was no obstacle there. It wasn't laborious. It wasn't toilsome. He, it, it didn't produce the sweat of his brow. But after the fall, now there's a conflict. And, and men, the trend among men is that, that you'd rather take the, pa- the, the course of passivity than the course of overcoming all of the obstacles to successfully till the soil that God has given you. See, the man wants to, the basic trend of the male is to give up responsibility and let the woman dominate, and the basic trend of the woman is to take advantage of that and dominate. Now, that's going to vary from person to person in different situations, but these are the general trends that God sets forth here. In verse 18, God said, Both thorns and thistles shall, it shall bring forth for you, that is the ground, and and you shall eat from the herb of the tree in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This is this is not going to change. So there's always these uh, <clears throat> these conflicts. Now, when we look at this passage, there are there are people today that come along and say, well, the reason you have authority that God later talks about the male being the leader and the authority in the home and the woman uh, not being the authority is because of sin. And that is an underlying assumption that we have today, so we need to address this question of uh, do these verses teach, first of all, that God intended to establish male authority in the relationship between Adam and Eve in the garden before sin? In other words, did God, uh, did God establish the authority of the man in the relationship between Adam and the woman before sin? That's called the complementarian view. And this is the, this is the term that's used today and has been used for the last 30 or 40 years because there's aspects to terms like traditional view or hierarchical view that are very negative. There's always a battle over the words. And the idea of complement means that they come together and only in uh, partnership, understanding right role relationships can they achieve together the uh, goal of God's plan. And in opposition to that, there's the egalitarian view, that the, and the egalitarian view is that men and women are equal not only in role, not only in essence, but also in role, complete interchangeability, and the idea that there are any kind of uh, distinctions and authorities just because of sin. Now, what the Scripture says, I tried to put this together in a little chart here, is that there's authority before everything. God, there's authority and submission in the eternal trinity. There was authority and a failure to submit to authority among the angels before God ever created the human race. And so authority existed before the fall. And then there's sin, the large black barrier. And everything after that is colored by corruption, the corruption of sin. So we often think of things such as authority and submission in very negative ways because our experience of it always includes an experience of injustice, an experience of tyranny, 
an experience of abuse because we're living in a fallen world. But authority is not always that way. It's not intrinsically evil. It has been corrupted in human experience. A submission is not intrinsically uh, wrong. It is intrinsically good, but it ha- it's practiced by corrupt, fallen human beings is often negative. So we live in this post-fall, sin-corrupted, uh, spiritually dead uh, world. So the challenge from the world is to is is to be egalitarian and to think that men can do everything women can do and women can do everything men can do. And, of course, we see that in the role and, and popularity of same-sex marriage today because that's what that's saying, is that, that there, it's completely interchangeable to women, to men, whatever. It has the ramifications of what I have t- been teaching the last three weeks for social change, and we're seeing the consequences of this. I've gone back and I've read things that were written and published on this issue 30, 40, 60, 100 years ago, and it is amazing how biblically orthodox, conservative theologians nail in their predictions of what's going to happen over the next 100 years. Because once you start changing God's divine institutions, certain things are going to naturally follow in terms of the, the, the change in society. So we have the complementary view, which complementarian view, which is the biblical view that God created males and females as intrinsic equals in nature and humanity, but with different roles which complete, complement, or enhance or improve one another. Now, this morning I want to begin this. I'm not going to get through all of this today, but I want to give you some reasons why we can just go to the creation narrative itself and understand that males were designed to be the authority and leader in the home and that the women were designed to be the helper, the assistant in the home. And so I'll start this morning with just probably the first two or three. First of all, we see that the order of creation itself, with the male created first, indicates God's design and intention for male headship or leadership in the marriage relationship. The order is significant. Now, now, how, why do I say it? Because the response from this is often, well, this is just the way God did it. It just happened that way. He just created the man first and then the woman. Well, does God act without design or purpose? That's, that's really the question we ought to be asking there. Does God do things just arbitrarily? This was just the way he did it. Maybe he woke up the next day and he would have done it the other way around. Or does God do things with intention and with purpose? And should we be paying attention to uh, how he does something and the order in which he created it? Think about this. God created Adam. God gave Adam certain instructions before he created Isha, the woman. When he created Isha, he doesn't create her independently of Adam, but he takes her from from a rib from the side of Adam, and she is out from him and from that's very significant. Now, we could say if that's all the information we had, well, maybe that's just the way God wanted to do it. But we have revelation in the New Testament in a couple of different passages that reinforce the fact that God did this intentionally and for a purpose to demonstrate 
that there is a, a, an order here that is intentional. And remember, when Paul writes these in things in the New Testament, he does so under the inspiration and authority of God, the Holy Spirit. And this is just as much uh, divinely accurate as any other part of Scripture. It's not his opinion. In 1 Timothy 2.12-14, through 14, after he has made his statement prohibiting women from teaching or exercising authority over males in the local body of Christ in the church, uh, in verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. This is one of the foundational reasons why we do not believe that women are to uh, hold the office of pastor-teacher, to pastor, to teach uh, the Bible to a mixed audience of men and women. There are many who believe that this excludes women from teaching the Scripture at all. And I think there's a strong case can be made for that here in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And every now and then we get people who come to this church who have never been properly taught this. They think, well, that was just somebody's opinion. It's the opinion of Scripture. It's very clear in this passage that women are prohibited from teaching. Prior to this, men are specifically commanded to pray together as a group. Males are to come together and pray. And that's specifically commanded in this passage. And then there's instruction to the women. But why does Paul say this? Because that's the way they did it in the synagogue? No. Do they do it this way because that's what was accepted in the culture, in the Greco-Roman culture at the time? No. He goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. God did this intentionally. There was a reason for that order is because there was a priority here. The, the, the idea of primogenitor, that the firstborn has priority and inheritance over the, those born later, comes out of the creation narrative of Scripture that the one who is created or formed first is, has a priority over the, those who are created subsequently. Paul argues from creation, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So there's a distinction here made because the woman was deceived, but the male, who is the designated head, goes in, walks into that sin with eyes wide open. And, and it's Adam that's fundamentally the, the issue. And, so, and we'll see that as we go through this, this particular uh, study. So the first point is that the order of creation shows that the, God intended for the male to be the spiritual leader of the home, the one accountable, the one who is the leader and the authority within, within the marriage. Second, we see that the way in which the woman was created also demonstrated this authority relationship. The woman could have been created at the same time as the man. God could have said, I'm going to create a male and female, poof, and then you have a man and a woman standing there. He could have created the male, and then he could have created the woman. He could have created the woman and then the man. But God chose to do it in a different way to create the man first and then the woman out from the man in order to show an organic unity between the two, a complementary unity, but to show that there, were a, there was a, a, a role distinction between the two. 
Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and following. Uh, there he's talking about the aspect of the head covering in the church, which is another issue. You can listen to my tapes on that. But here he says, for, the reason is not culture, it's creation order. For the male is not from the woman, but the woman is from the man. There was a significance that God in his omniscience knows what he's doing in Genesis 2 and what that implication is for all of human history. It's not something Paul just comes up with and says, oh, wow, you know, we can go back there and we can draw this allegory. No, that's not what he's doing. He is saying that God did this intentionally the way he did it in Genesis 2 because he is setting a pattern for all of human, for all of human history. So the man was not from the woman, but the woman from the man, nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now, this isn't so the woman is there so that the man can use and abuse her for whatever pleasure he has. It is related to the original command that together they were to glorify God and the woman was created to help him achieve the goal of God's mission for him and God's calling uh, for him. So the third thing we see from the original creation story is that the woman was created from Adam to show her absolute unity with Adam in terms of being fully in the image and the likeness of God. There's that or that, that connection there. The imageness of God is passed on. How do we know that? In Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5, which we, where we get our genealogy, says this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the image of God, in the likeness of God. So Adam's created in the likeness of God, and then we're reminded of Genesis 1.26. He created the male and female and blessed them, called them mankind or humanity in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years, and he begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Seth is not said to be created in the image of God. He's created in the image of Adam. But Adam was created in the image of God. Therefore, Seth is in the image of God. And we know this is true because when we get to Genesis 9-6 and the command related to capital punishment, the reason for capital punishment of a murderer is because he's murdered a human being who is in the image of God. Every human being, even after the fall, even though that imageness has been uh, corrupted, is still an image of God bearer. We are all in the image of God. And so we all have value as human beings because we are in the image of God. That relates to our essence, and we're equal, male and female, in terms of that imageness. But just as God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are equally God with the Father, there is a role relationship. And part of the Son's role was to come to the earth, to take on humanity, to submit to the Father, which is what Philippians 2 talks about, that he willingly took on humanity and, to, and he humbled himself to the point of obedience. See, that's, that's the authority issue there, which prepared him to go to the cross where he died for our sins. So this issue of authority and submission isn't just a matter of you know, who's going to run things in the household. It's just not, not just a matter of who's going to do the dishes and who's going to cut the grass. It's not just a matter of who's going to handle the discipline with the kids. 
These are issues that are fundamentally related to the core issue of the angelic conflict in human history and the core issues of salvation and regeneration and the recovery of the ability in the lives of believers to pursue the God-given goal that God has for each of us as individuals. When we violate and we start playing with these whole principles related to role distinctions in marriage, we are attacking the very foundations of God's plan for human beings and human history. It is not a small matter. It is a vital, a vital spiritual matter, and how we handle that in our lives uh, plays a huge role in its impact not only upon the angels, Scripture says, but also upon our culture, the civilization around us, and has a, has a tremendous impact on our own spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to re- refresh our thinking about these things, and often this is very difficult. I know and recognize, and you knew from eternity past, that there would be men and women who come to this particular topic with a lot of uh, <clears throat> extremely uh, negative, painful embarrassing baggage where they have been abused or victims of one thing or another, but none of that is relevant to the eternal truth of Scripture. And it's the eternal truth of Scripture that, and only the eternal truth of Scripture, that enables us to surmount uh, any negatives that we may have experienced within a fallen, corrupt world. So, Father, we pray that as we study these things that we might be willing to follow the lead of the Lord Jesus Christ and to submit ourselves to your authority, and humble ourselves that no matter where your word takes us, we're willing to obey it and implement it in our thinking and in our lives, knowing that that this is the only way in which we can fully realize uh, all that you have designed for us in our, in our spiritual lives and in our roles and responsibilities while we're on earth. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins. He bore in his own body on the tree our judgment that we would not do, be able to do anything to add to it. He fully, completely paid that penalty so that all that is left is for us to decide whether we're going to accept that payment as a free gift or reject it. If we accept it, we have eternal life. We trust in Jesus and him alone for our salvation. We are regenerate, justified, uh, reconciled, redeemed. We are new creatures in Christ, none of which can be taken from us. All of that is ours. And at this moment, it is my prayer that if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, that you would do so. Father, we pray for each of us as believers that we might be challenged by what we are studying right now, that this might have a tremendous fruit in our lives as we walk by the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.